Welcome to the College Scoops Podcast. I'm your host, Moira McCullough, and today we are talking with Jed Appleruth, founder and president of Appleruth Tutoring Services. Jed will discuss some of the psychological impacts, both positive and negative, on college students as a result of the pandemic and how to prep mentally for 2021. So get rid of passive things, generate errors, um, don't go for more than half an hour, an hour, take breaks, space things out and do like, it's way better for you to do three 45 minute sessions of a physics thing over multiple days than do three and a half, four hours in one day. Um, so it's really, sp- you need time between to uh, at night to reinforce, you know, at night you have this transfer. This is the College Scoops Podcast, and I'm your host, Moira McCullough. We focus on everything college-related, from the admissions process to where to eat, stay, and explore on and around campuses. Our guests include founders, educators, authors, and experts in the college space. Join us as these experts share their knowledge, experiences, and lessons learned to help you have stress-free, informative, and tasty college journeys. Whether it's your first or last child going to college, or you're just interested in going to a college town for a game or meal, we've got you covered. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the College Scoops podcast to get the inside scoops on everything college-related, and leave us a review. Thanks to all of our sponsors, partners, and the entire College Scoops ambassador team for helping us bring valuable content to our community. If you would like to support College Scoops as a sponsor, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash college scoops and sign up as a sustaining listener, insider, or deluxe sponsor. We have exclusive benefits for our members, free eBooks, and even a College Scoops care package. Jed Appleruth is the founder and president of Appleruth Tutoring Services, a nationally certified counselor with a PhD in educational psychology. Jed has researched student cognition, memory, motivation, and learning strategies to enhance the pedagogical strategies at Appleruth. A trained artist, Jed merges his counseling and educational insights with his visual talents and humor to create original and effective instructional materials. Jed, thank you so much for joining us on the College Scoops podcast today. Great to be here, Mara. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's so nice because I reached out to you because of your article that I read on your website, and you have so many great articles, but this one hit me at the moment that just I really needed to hear it. It was about willpower, habits, and cognitive reframing, which I was like, I need to do more of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And the reframe is, is big. Oh my gosh. I, I felt like you were, you had a look in, into my home because as I was walking by that Halloween candy bowl that I was so good at avoiding for weeks until that moment. And then I... Yep you know, reached out. Whoever has not read that article, I'm going to put it on the <laughs> blog post <laughs> to share. And that, that concept, the cognitive reframe, it's, it's a major concept in counseling and psychology of how to help people reframe situations, reinterpret. But one of the things that I first heard it was there's a researcher in Stanford, Walter Michel. He's very famous for the marshmallow test. Um, and he did this in Stanford in the 60s with his, with his daughter and then her class. And he thought, the whole thing about the ability to delay gratification and, and like he had the marshmallow and, you know, and for 15 minutes, these, these little kids, uh, the idea was if you can wait 15 minutes in this room with this marshmallow here, then I'll come back and give you another marshmallow on top of that. And it was all about the impulse control inhibition. And can I ignore that? And the kids who were very successful, many of them, the ones who failed epically, 
were the ones who were just looking at this marshmallow and then they were they were sniffing the marshmallow there. It's like they were trying to not eat it, but eventually you're going to eat it. The ones who did great, they did a reframe of this isn't a marshmallow at all. Or they would distract themselves and they would turn away from the marshmallow. Or they would say, it's like, this is a, an abstract picture. I actually can't eat this. And those people that did the reframe made it to that, that, that time period. And so the idea of mentally to shift how you use something is a, a so powerful for the ability to regulate behavior and attention and inhibit distraction um, that, you know, the inside game is huge, that reframing piece. Well, it is. And actually, my son, my youngest son is amazing at it. He has refrain, he has cut out sugar. And, and I'm a baker. And even for his birthday in late September, I'm like, what can I get you for your 18th birthday? And I love baking. And he just looked at me and he thought, do you really want me to answer that? <laughs> let's, let's think about it. I've given up sugar for this reason and work with me. Like, let's, so I'm trying to learn from you and from my youngest son. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, mentally, it's mostly an inside game. My friends who spent a decade quitting smoking, my friend finally quit, and he's in his forties, and it's like, but it was it was a reframe. It was a mental versus like that that little bit of pleasure or whatever it was, or the, the versus really focusing his thought now on all the negatives. And so it's kind of like self hypnosis essentially, where you're, you're trying to prime yourself for there's there's the positives of what I get. But now I see this cigarette. Now it's like instantly he has his mind flooded with all the costs and the negative and his lungs and this. And so now he's, it's been a year and a half and he has, after so many failed attempts, he's finally done it. But for him, it really was this mental, this cognitive shift that is, has changed his behavior like powerfully. Well, and that's kind of, you know, given the time that we're in right now, it's a perfect discussion to have test taking that has been always a challenge for me as I was younger and I had to learn how to learn and that took a long time for me but now when we talk about the environment and what students are going through and it's stressful all around for everyone it doesn't matter what age so I wanted to reach out and ask you for advice and how we can help students to self-regulate take that willpower take control of what they can control and create an environment that will make them perform better. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things that you have seen in terms of, I know when we talked, you mentioned some of the positives that have come out of the online learning and virtual environment. And I was surprised at some of your statements that are really kind of accurate. So can you share a little bit about that, what you've seen and what you've heard from students as to some of the positive things that have come out of it and what we can do? Absolutely. And, you know, it's finally, it seems like where we can see if all the science that we've, the research data is true, it looks like we're, we're like April and May aren't that far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all this, even this morning, some of the data from Pfizer and BioNTech and some of the, the, the research about long-term immunity is like, I'm, I'm getting excited. I find myself, it's like, is this really, really going to end in five months? It's amazing. And we've done eight months. I can, I can, I can survive five months. Like, like, no, all of us can. Um, but in terms of over the past eight months, we've definitely seen positive and negatives from this. And, and um, initially, when I remember the very, very beginning, uh, when this first began to manifest, you know, in February, March in the U.S., and then one of my good friends is a psychiatrist, and, and she and all of her, her colleagues on these, um, like, they're, they're posting to each other how so many of their clients who were struggling before, when, like, the, the stay-at-home learning began, lockdown began, a lot of the students uh, that they were working with who had other issues and pathologies, comorbidities, they began to do better in this environment. And some of them had social anxieties. 
some of them, you know, they're having to choose, you know, what clothes you have to wear, having to manage the ins and outs of like the social dynamics and hierarchies in high school and performance and what saying the right thing or the wrong thing. And that suddenly becomes gone. People don't nervous about raising their hands like that. Suddenly now I can like text the teacher. It, it changed. And some people really began to thrive. Um, this is again, a minority of students because for the majority of people out there, um, this experience of learning via a screen, it is in the grand scheme of things relatively thin. Um, it's not a rich, robust dynamic as in a classroom. You think about all the cues that you're getting constantly from, from students around you and the teacher environmental cues. They're telling you, you know, even the students, the teacher's body language, her body, um, paying attention to information in terms of what's important, what's not important, looking around, my peers are all their heads down suddenly. Like there are things you're missing when you're looking at the screen. Um, and so the thinness has really been challenging for many people to rely upon some of those cues in the learning environment. And, it's, and some people have had to struggle with how do I regulate myself, my time, Again, the same thing. If you're in a, in a library and everybody around you studying, it's one thing. But when you're in your space um, with all the distractions and it's learning how to engineer your environment to facilitate the, the task you're trying to achieve and to minimize distractions to, to, to try to really to, to balance that. So if you engineer your environment right, you, you're, you're at least halfway there. Um, and this part of it is, you know, these little devices and these little things which are in our, our, you know, our frame of view, even the very sight of this, mine's on airplane mode, so I know it's not going to ping me, but even the anticipation, the expectation that it might ping, it, it affects my ability to do any kind of deep processing. Um, it makes you process in a more shallow way, affects memory, it affects retention, uh, transfer, long-term memory. These, these little things are a nightmare for learning. They're also amazing for the ability to find information. Uh, I reference mine on a pretty regular basis. Um, but I've also had to learn to have boundaries around it and you don't bring it to the bedroom, you know, having some healthy, you know, boundaries around our technology. Because they can do incredible things, but they can also have negative effects on us. And also negative social effects on us and so forth, but positive too. So this is a totally double-edged story. Um, but for students, it's learning that if I'm trying to focus on a task at hand, I have to manage my environment better. I have to make sure my phone is either off or even out of the room, even better, charging in the kitchen, delightful. Um, that I don't have Instagram up, I don't have the Snapchat up, I, I don't have anything. And even, you know, and part of it's learning how to self-regulate and self-consequence, self-motivate, that I'm not going to let myself, like, there are, we all have certain sites we love. Um, and whether they're social, and if you're a teenage person, they're probably more social. If you're an adult, it could be Wikipedia surfing and going to rabbit holes or CNN or Reuters, whatever you go to. And it's having some, again, boundaries in terms of when I do that, when I allow that. Um, and if I'm trying to do deep work, uh, you know, I can't let myself having those, you know, it's nice to have breaks. It's nice to go for 30 minutes and then I take 10 minutes. But if I just let myself interrupt my deep work session, then I'm, I'm going to really affect my output and the quality of the work I'm, I'm accomplishing. So good boundaries between when I'm working and when I'm playing um, is something that during this time, especially has come to the fore when students have to really regulate themselves. Even if there's a classroom here, I have a brother who's a teacher up in Toronto, and he did a lot of online learning. He said half the kids, they were here on the box, but their phones were open. And there were other things. Because when you're at home, you know, you have a lot more control and power. And he said, those kids, they were learning minimally. They're going through the motions of learning, but they really weren't learning that much. And so I think students have had to realize that they have a lot more power, uh, you know, in terms of 
if they regulate, if they study, if they don't study, um, if they're, you know, their learning becomes more their own. And honestly, once we're adults, that really is our world. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're getting, honestly, a little bit more of a taste of, of learning in the adult world, where it's not the system of control, where this is a person in front controlling all your behaviors. Even in grad school, there's so much more freedom and freedom to focus and freedom to flounder and fail. And that's one of the reasons why people who go into a PhD program, half of them are ABD. They don't, they don't finish. Because that last section is, is up to you to regulate when I work, when I study, what I'm focusing on, and half the people don't, don't finish it. So I, I think this really was a good test of do you have the skills or resources? If not, can you expand them, increase them, enhance them to make you more effective at self-regulation? Because even once you go to college, half of people don't finish. Um, and so, you know, learning the skills of regulating oneself now can be super helpful in college, grad school, and then work and beyond. Because, you know, many jobs require you to be somewhat independent. And isn't a teacher up there cracking the whip and saying, now do this, now do this. It is, okay, here are my five tasks. I have this much time. How do I use my time? Where do I have breaks? Um, how, how long do I go before I change subjects? These are all things you have to learn. And uh, so to me, this, this time has been helpful and instructive. And I feel like some people are going to, going to go back to regular school stronger, um, having learned that they do have resources or they have improved. And even kids who floundered and then got their bearings, well, they're now better off for having floundered and, and, and strengthened than having never known. I think that's one of the things that we have to do too, is kind of look at the positives and look at what am I learning from this and what can I take away to make it better going forward? Because sometimes I, you could focus on the negative. You could just go down that rabbit hole. Lots of negative, lots of reasons to whine, lots of sacrifices. I mean, we've all sacrificed something and teenagers and kids, they've lost a lot exactly. um, objectively. But it also is, you know, this is an experience. You'll look back and remember this experience your entire life. Um, the part of it is what did you get? And I think everyone, you know, I think can get something from this. And for us, like we're in online education. We've been doing the Zoom stuff for, for 10 years. It wasn't with Zoom, it was with Cisco and WebEx and Where's IQ, other products. But now it's realizing a lot of kids, they actually, like I, I've had people say, like, I actually really like online learning. And I've had therapist friends say, you know what? I, I didn't want to do it forever. But now I realize I actually can do remote therapy pretty well. Um, and so, you know, there are things that we have, and I, I normally travel around the country giving lectures, and this time I was just staying in my basement, and I'm realizing, you know, I can do a pretty good job, and then skip the airports, and the rental cars, and the hotels, and just, so this may carry forward. Um, there, there are things from this experience which, which may transfer to the next 10 years of my life, even though that COVID will be over. Um, so, I don't know, I do think there are definitely lessons, and there are upsides, along with the sacrifices and the pain and other things like that. Um, but some people, you know, even those struggling, I was talking to a friend this morning whose daughter is going through a bit of a mental health real challenge. And, and young people now, there's more depression and anxiety and other things, especially kids who are very, very social and super extroverted. And they've been locked at home because there are certain regions here in Atlanta that still, they're, they're, they're watching a screen. And some kids have been struggling. Kids who are super healthy, adaptive, they were doing great. This has really pushed them and really challenge them to see what kind of skills do you have at your disposal? What kind of resources do you have? Um, and, and, but, but again, I was talking to my friends, like the struggles that your daughter's going through right now, honestly, if she goes through this and like, she'll actually be stronger and ready for the next challenge. Cause guarantee there will be more challenges. It won't be COVID, but there'll be something else that's disappointing or hard. And if you can get through a hard thing now, 
these hard things make us more resilient later in life. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I always say you learn so much from the failures and if you don't, then you need to fail again. <laughs> like I, we, I was talking about this thing called the stress tolerance that I can handle some pain yeah. and I, I can get through this. And you know, my friend, his daughter was doing a little bit of self harm, which is actually pretty common among females. Like one in five will try some of the self harm. And it's like, you know, that, that's one way, but there's a whole buffet of options of when you have distress, when you have pain, there are some, there are ways that are really adaptive and really healthy. And then those that are destructive, that, 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 there's a price for those. And part of it is, okay, this is one, this is one way of solving a problem, but what are, what are other ways? And I, you know, I get why you're doing it. And is after you hurt yourself as endorphin, other things that you feel good for a moment, but long-term it's a, there, there's a cost to it versus some people, they exercise and like, you know, they, they, that keeps them very, some people there, again, there's a whole array of substances and alcohol and chemicals, but then there's meditation and then there's mindfulness and then there's you know, other, other things. And so part of it is trying this array, this whole buffet of ways of handling distress and learning that I can handle some pain. I can handle, I have an inner warrior and I'm not going to have pain in this fall apart, but let me look closely at what are the skills and resources and options and choosing one that's going to be better for you in the long term for your life. Um, but I, I don't begrudge someone, I don't fault them, but you tried this, I got it, you felt pain, you wanted to feel something, you did this, I understand that. But what, if you want to feel something, you find numb, what are other ways for you to feel something apart from hurting yourself? Right. And we start talking about that. And it's, but I, you know, it's like, okay, you, you know, we're always trying to problem solve. And this is one answer to a problem, but is there, uh, I'm much trying to optimize. Is there, is there a better answer to the same problem without judgment, without shame? I don't want to shame or judge. It's like, okay, but I see you trying to solve a problem you're having and look at it in that regard. And I'm looking at resources and strengths and what are other things you've done which have helped you. Can we do more of that? And, and, and less versus you're bad for doing it. Oh, you weren't bad. It's just, okay, you, you solve this problem this way. Is there a better way? I think that's the whole judgment and having a little bit of grace and giving yourself a little yeah. bit of um, opportunity to self-reflect and say, okay, I tried these five things and guess what? There is a way to optimize it and do something better. So if you have students, when you talked about this, you know, somebody who's social, who are used to that being in a room, like I'm somebody who does better meeting face-to-face. -face. This whole Zoom thing is really kind of, it's, it's grown on me and I appreciate it and I'm thankful for it. <laughs> but I would really like to be sitting in an office talking with you or sitting at a cafe in that type of environment. So for students, how do you keep that sense of connection without feeling isolated? Like what are some different approaches or tactics that you would say, you know, to get engaged and excited about learning? And connections, and this whole thing is about connections. And part of it, what we know that one of the key ingredients to happiness is a rich network of human connections. Mm -hmm. You know, like pro-social, like helping other people, having meaning and purpose, and being connected. And then that's one of the reasons, like, religion's really great. You know, there are things where we get connected. People go to 12-step. It's a community. And it's a connect. the connections we make keep us healthy and sane. And I've seen people in my own family and network who are getting really isolated for a variety of reasons, who are living by themselves, um, who are single. And the isolation, I mean, it's how we punish people. Is isolate. It's how we torture people, is isolation. Uh, and so you have to find ways to make meaningful connections. And part of it is, is you know, there, there are different ways to connect. There's connecting with self. And, there, and part of it is, like, you know, going for a walk. There's one thing when this, this my friend's dog going crazy. It's like, 
when she goes out for a walk and like even connecting with, with nature, with the trees or, and then the humans around you. And I, you know, I've been pushing, I have a person close to me who's been very depressed over this past for months. And it's all about the human connection. Like turn off the Netflix, turn off the stuff. These things, they're not giving, you're not interacting, you're not receiving, and you aren't helping another. We also benefit tremendously when we help another. Um, that's part of happiness too. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, being of use, being, which is a major you know, need of ours to be useful. Um, and so in, in this regard, how do you connect closely? It's, well, you know, it's finding ways to do things safely. This weekend, my wife and I and my daughter, we went and saw two friends. And it's still warm enough in Atlanta, which is, but we sat on the carport, 10 feet apart. And we were able to, you know, have an hour, have an hour and a half outside, just just having the most simple interaction. Um, but just being, being close to the person in a safe way. And then my friend Keith went to his, see, see his house. He just, we did outside in this gazebo thing. And again, distance. But it was just, you know, an hour, an hour and a half of being with someone. It's so healthy. And I think right now, more than ever, uh, these relationships are key. And what I want to recommend and encourage strongly is not interacting, connecting, mediated by a screen. Um, if you have the ability, there's a, there's a great book. Uh, it's called iGen. Gene Twangy. It's everything mental health-wise. And the more time you spend looking at this, the more time you spend interacting with the screen, the less happy you are, the less healthy you are, higher anxiety, higher depression rates. Um, and the more time you are with your friends, in person, interacting, connecting, uh, that's very grounding. Um, and that's wonderfully helpful. And also, you know, there's, it's so different when you interact with a human being and the kind of feedback, the attention you're getting, the, the, the eye gaze, all this, there's a richness to it. And then on, on the computer when, you know, People are co-thinking, or we're spreading, and they're liking up. There's more of a performance, and I'm performing something, and there's anxiety of performance. Versus when you're spending time with another human being, typically it's not performing, and there's something more authentic and can be real, because it's not for public consumption. It's you and this friend having this meeting of hearts and minds. So, in terms of connection, right now, it's the, the more you can optimize human connections, even short ones, safe ones, better, better, better with your teacher and, and always you want to have like a face even right now there's more of a limbic connection and limbic resonance with a human versus just seeing a text text is so thin you lose nuance you lose subtext you lose everything and so a voice trumps the heck out of a, a you know a snap or a chat or and then beyond the voice having a face and beyond the face having a body because we're also mammals I just finished this enormous book about two nights ago. Uh, Behave, Robert Sapolsky. Um, this neuroscience from an email. Um, and with the teachers, interact with them. These connections are, are so important. So with your friends, and for teenagers, their, their peers are more important than the adults, clearly. Because they're, they're trying to separate. They're trying to individuate. And that's their primary life task, is to forge an identity that's independent of their parents. That's when the parents stop being cool. And they're, I don't want to, you know, you're, you're so lame, their eyes roll. That's healthy. That's part of, I'm trying to create a self so I'm not totally enmeshed with you. And that's, that's great. And, and then they'll come back and say, actually, you're okay, I love you. But for a short time, it's like my peers are more important. And that's, that's perfect. Um, and so it's trying to encourage, you know, the, the friendships and the meaningful connections with teachers um, and have them reach out actively um, versus staying, because you can definitely isolate behind a screen and not engage. And it's, it's so important that we encourage good help, help seeking. And just, you know, eventually the teachers writing your teacher recommendations and everything else, like you need to have these connections so they know how to talk about you and speak about you and know how to, and also support you. And if you need more help or more time, 
whatever it is, you, you know, when you have that rapport, that really creates currency and that creates an opening for you to begin to ask for things you need and advocate for yourself. So having good, healthy rapport with your teachers is, is amazing. Eventually, when you're in college, more the same and, and beyond. You know what I always say to my kids, when you establish that relationship and develop that, sometimes it's the informal connections, whether you're in a hallway and now you don't have that. But, but when you reach out and talk about something other than the homework per se or the assignment per se, and you get to know them, how are you today? Or asking some of the questions, they're dealing with it as much as we are. They're having a tough time. They would rather be in a classroom with yourself. The one thing I think I have seen with at least my kids is we were never big on technology to begin with. But as a result, I think that kids are going to value that that face-to-face communication, which I think it was lost for a period of time that it was like this faceless. Everyone was texting and now I think they're craving for that face-to-face and they don't want to bring that phone and they're not going to be staring at that screen while they're sitting next to each other. I don't know if you've seen that as well, but I- well, it's slowly coming in. Um, another researcher, I forget her name for a moment, she wrote a book called Alone Together. And you've seen this before where everyone's hanging out, but everyone's by themselves. It, on a New York subway, you see it in a restaurant, you see it in a, you have four friends meeting and they're all doing this. And it's like, wow, there's a missed opportunity here. And the notions like we, we don't have good boundaries yet with our, and it takes time for us to craft new boundaries and have, and have really um, introspection and, and reflection on our devices. Initially, when it first came out, it's like, oh my God, these are the best things in the world. We realized, oh, they're, they're actually not. They're, they're great tools, but also when we spend every minute on these, we're squeezing out time when our brain goes into this um, like default mode processing. There's a certain kind of thinking, non-focused thinking where we get creativity, our brain resets, we get ideas on the default mode network. And if we're constantly putting in new information and activating our frontal cortex and, you know, feed me, feed me, feed me, we're not going to get those insights. We're not going to get that self-talk saying, like, little things coming to us if we're just shoving in more and more and more content. Like, we need time. So part of it is before, I'm going to fill every second with new stuff. No, 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 it's actually bad for my brain, bad for my creativity, bad for my thinking, bad for my insight. And so, and, and, and bad for my self-relationship. My, my inner landscape gets clouded if I keep cramming it full of stuff. I need time not feeding it. And so we're learning, even for me, I have a little baby girl upstairs, she's seven months old, and it's like it's important when I'm with her every time that I don't go and reach for the phone. Because what's amazing is seeing her at, at five, six, seven months, as wherever our attention is, hers goes. And she's learning that if we start looking at screens, then the screen becomes the most important thing in the room for her, for a seven-month-old. And it's like, I have to be very careful here. Yes. At seven months, at 10, at 10, at 20. So it's learning boundaries. And it's learning for ourselves, our boundaries, modeling for our kids, good boundaries. And I think phones all collected, they go into a thing, but not constant access, uninterrupted. Like there are times these should go away. I mean, we used to have, you know, the basket at the front desk. That's where it goes. Basket here. Just, I'm so excited for Thanksgiving in a sense with all of our kids coming home. And I know I can't see extended family. and But I know that some of our best memories have been going for a walk and all of a sudden seeing the leaves falling and then having a discussion and just, as you said, taking it all in. It was like, how could we have missed this? Because if I was on my phone or if I was listening to an audible, I would have missed this. Yeah. And then the limbic resonance with the the other, when you're with someone and you're connecting with them and you're, you know, attuned to them and then, or you're attuned with nature and it changes. 
our rate of respiration and our rate of our, 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 our blood pressure goes down. Everything starts to calm, like nature heals and, and human connection heals. And human connection drops cortisol levels, things. All these good things happen when we're with people and connecting with them or even they're touching or holding hands or whatever. These things heal our bodies and our minds. Um, so all that, yeah, in our, these phones can just get in the way of all of it. My, my wife um, grew up in, a, in New York City, and there's a place to have up in um, Albany that her great-grandfather built on a lake. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like for 25 or so, 30 years, when she went up there, there was no Wi-Fi. And, at the dial- and then they finally, a couple of years ago, got it, and she has very mixed feelings. Yeah. Um, it allows me to work up there. But then suddenly it's like forever and ever, it was just we played puzzles. Or we hang out, and then we just connect. And now when the kids come, like um, her nephew is playing Fortnite. Or, doing, or the other kids are on Instagram. It's like the importance of being bored. The incredible importance of boredom for creativity and the importance of boredom for self-regulation. Yes. I'm like, we need to create and structure boredom versus overscheduling and feeling every minute is actually really lousy for humans. We have the opportunity to go up to Cape Cod during the summers and we don't have any TV up there. That's the best. We have a whole chest of all these games. And it was very interesting when some of my kids had their friends over and they didn't know what Parcheesi, I have my grandmother's Parcheesi. Oh, and you don't, you're not leaving the present. Like you are actually present with each other. Right. Yeah. How you help students also with the test anxiety, all that you've just described is, is steps towards that. Are any other tips that you have for students as they try to finish the semester strong and then ways you've suggested all these ways to decompress during their break in between semester, yeah. take the opportunity and then to hit the ground running or at least start a semester 2021, which we hope is going to be a totally new year yeah. overall. Well, finishing strong. I mean, it's a combination of things. Um, we're going to, you know, we're entering a period, a lot of kids who were in college now after the break, they're going to be at home. Right. Like back on zoom. Um, and many, you know, as the outbreak is going to be raging around, it seems like it's, it's pretty tough, and it'll be tough for a while. And the vaccine's still months away, so we're going to have to be on better behavior. Um, but it means that some kids who are currently in school are going back home again. And it's about learning how to manage. Again, manage your environment, manage your time, how to prioritize the structure. One thing we were talking about before we pressed record was the, the importance of doing harder things earlier mm-hmm. and first, and not saving. It's, it's understanding how to prioritize, understanding things like and that, that intensive cognitive tasks them first. Don't put them at the end. Uh, you, you know, do, do the hard things first. Um, and also the importance of taking breaks at the mind, you know, in terms of when exam times comes, we, we, some people go for two, three hours and ultimately our cognitive efficiency declines and declines and declines. Like we, um, there's the effect of your, as you put new things in, the brain can hold so much at one time and you begin to, it's, it's called cognitive interference and new information interferes with the old, like you need breaks. You need times for the brain to consolidate time to walk away and then to replenish and come back and so like after an hour after half an depending on yourself you know take a break um and then do something non-cognitively demanding go and look outside play a song move your body even better and come back there's something about interleaving subjects so you don't it's much much worse to do three hours of one subject way way better to do an hour of physics then pause then do an hour of french or spend then pause then and out versus doing three hours of physics so the big blocks are very ineffective and very efficient. It's also an important thing about the how essential it is to get feedback when you're trying to learn content. Um, and the things that are non-feedback intensive are very ineffective. 
So like rereading a chapter three times, wildly ineffective. Um, even like doing like highlighting, or it's not very effective. It's it's passive. Um, you want you have to generate errors um, when you're doing it. So you have to be doing self quizzing, self testing, doing split half notes. So I have concepts here, and I, you know, I have to forcibly retrieve information from memory to see if I know it. If I'm not generating mistakes and errors, and there's no feedback, I'm not really learning. Um, and so self testing is actually hugely important versus just any whatever's passive typically is not effective for learning. So get rid of passive things, generate errors, um, don't go for more than half an hour, an hour, take breaks, space things out and do like, it's way better for you to do three 45 minute sessions of a physics thing over multiple days than do three and a half, four hours in one day. Um, so it's really, you need time between to uh, at night to reinforce, you know, at night you have this transfer, um, you, you know, in terms of, um, from short-term working memory, you know, to, to long-term memory at night. And those events are really important to, 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 to learn it some and forget some, come back, relearn it again. Every time you revisit it, those neural traces get stronger and stronger and stronger. So you need multiple traces, not one, one long session. Um, other things are the importance, again, if I'm going to study that, you know, for, to actually build breaks into your calendar. Um, so when you have all this time and you're in study session, like go three hours, then I'm going to move my body and go for a walk, I'm going to play. And even structuring your time to, to, to be social. Structuring 30 minutes or a Snapchat. I mean, it's like you, you need to have that, but don't try to do it concurrently. Um, you, you have better boundaries. For I'm studying for two and a half hours. My phone's in a different room. For an hour, I'm just playing. Having good boundaries, using your body, um, the importance of sleep for long-term transfer. Sleep is essential for memory and encoding into long-term memory. Um, and diet's important too. And as our glucose runs out, our, you know, throughout the day, we get less and less able to, to think. Um, and so taking breaks, going and eating, making sure you have glucose and, you know, which feeds your brain. You aren't hungry or malnourished. So exercise, sleep, diet, social interaction, human contact, taking breaks. Um, these are all things that will help you. And we're just learning how, to, how do I manage myself? This is all about self-regulation, which is about this moment in school, but also in life. Right. How do I be a good parent to myself? This is, you know, this is self-parenting. And eventually, we're in, when you're in college, how do I self-parent when I'm in college? And how do I take care of myself and what I need? I'm just you know? laughing because everything that you've just described, I need to do as myself. Exactly. This, these are life skills. I, I found myself, I think the whole working from home, I, I would go 10 hours. And yeah. all of a sudden, it started affecting me physically. I'm like, what is going on? Oh, well, maybe because I just sat here for 10 hours. And to your point... I wasn't as effective. Performance level just plummeted and I was exhausted and I had no water. <laughs> and then I went down to just grab a piece of candy. I mean, honestly, I did everything that you said not to. <laughs> so amazing. I think the other thing truly that I would say as a parent, I'm getting ready for with my kids coming home is also how can I help you and how can we be in this small place together and help each other and kind of set up boundaries because I think that's something else. It's like, what do you need to do and when do you need to do it so that we're working with each other and not against each other? And I think taking up the level of communications that uh, we are, you know, we have to, we have to uh, collaborate. We have to be mindful of each other and help each other. And so it's communication right? and skillful communication and asking for what you need and being aware. And part of it, the executive function piece of, you know, knowing I'm going to need this at this time and being able to anticipate that and share that. Absolutely. Um, like as you mentioned before, you know, you had someone who came to you for help 
at like, you know, 9.30 at night. And that's when cognitively you're spent. And so I was like, now I, I can't be as, even as it's due in the morning, I'm much, much more helpful and beneficial. And it's, it's being able to anticipate I might need help from past experiences. Therefore, I'm going to ask you in advance and find out when it's going to be easiest for you to help me. And then that's really a life skill, learning how to ask for help. And part of it is the packaging and the timing of, of the ask, um, of, of where and how and when and how early you ask versus I'm going to ask when I'm in crisis versus I'm understanding, you know, I may need help. Let me plant a seed a day early. So if I do need help, I know when you're going to be available and around. So I'm not scrambling and stressing out when I'm right against the wall of the deadline. Right. And I think something you and I talked about, the joy I got out of helping others is what are ways that we can do to help each other in this time? I know with my not being able to see my parents and they're, they're not in a place where they have access to anyone. I almost get more joy in helping others and that's making me stronger. To- so there's a balance point, but yeah, it's, it's nice. The recompense of giving to others and, you know, helping others, being connected to others. We are, we're social animals and we're, we're meant to be, you know, you want to feel confident. You want to feel like we can do things. You want to feel connected to others. You want to feel like we have choices and some autonomy. These are like fundamental pieces of what, what drives us. So good about my identity. You, I'm helping you um, versus living selfishly. Logotherapy, yes. Um, Man's Search for Meaning. Very important little book. And uh, Victor Frankl talked about like, like living for another. Um, and how do you make, you know, he survived the Holocaust and observe people and all the acts, like having something to live for. And you've had the crisis of faith and things haven't, and living for another, um, living to help another, um, and finding a way to, you know, having meaning in your life is really, is really profound for, for happiness and finding a way. And if it's, even if you have to trade out the old meaning for a new, but there's purpose and meaning, um, that's really important for us, um, to know that we're, our lives, you know, they have some effects and impact and, be, and helping another, you know, that, that's some, that really, we feel better about ourselves. Like we're, there's a selfish element there, you know, it's altruism, but also we serve the other and ourselves. There's a lot of good out there and we just have to be upbeat. So, yeah. um, two things. One, what do you wish you knew before you attended college? Wow. What do I wish I knew? I, I guess I wish as a, you know, my mid forties, I wish as an 18 year old, and this may sound funny, but I, like how little the academics mattered, um, that it really wasn't about the academics. I would have taken very different classes. Um, I, I'm one of the people like, you know, I got two bachelors, a master's, a PhD, and my, and my bachelor's was my least meaningful and least useful and least enjoyed um, experience. I, I so enjoyed my master's program. I so enjoyed the, you know, the doctoral program. Many parts, I loved it. My bachelor's, I, I think I, I kind of wasted it. Um, and for me, realizing in hindsight, you know, college was really about this transition period between being a kid and being an adult, learning how to navigate these situations, how to manage things, friendships and leases and travels, um, applying for jobs. That was really the, the purpose. In many ways, it was a buffer between, you know, before I had financial, you know, real responsibilities economically. Um, and my classes, I, I really drudged through, like I, I did part of the ward and curriculum, and it was counting one and accounting two and, you know, cost accounting, oh my God, and finance one and finance two and, you know, and like stat one and stat, it's like there, calc one, calc, calc 151. Calc, there was so much, there was a lot of drudgery 
Um, and then there were, I had four classes of 40 that I really loved. And it's like, that was a lousy ratio. Um, there, were, there was a lot more drudgery versus the, the real joy of learning. And in hindsight, I would have gone back and, and, and taken more classes that I loved. Um, like my, you know, modern American poetry and English 88. And uh, there, there were classes that, that, that were transformative, but there were few. Right. Um, and I have friends who went to college and college blew their mind open and they adored college. And it was the best experience. But for me, my master's, my doctorate were more, were really more, there's more pleasure. So I think go for more pleasure um, and think less, you know, less drudgery, less pain. Um, and realizing that you use a fraction, if any, of what you learn in a college. I, Ten years later, so few of us are using our major. Um, it's so rare. And so it's like, so think about, you're going to probably get more of your professional chops in for your graduate level work. So I feel like for your undergraduate, really focus, to me, it's more on the aesthetics of it, more the, the joy of learning, um, more like, versus right now everyone's afraid they're going towards computer science or something. Unless you love that, like my thing is this experience to be with smart people smart classes and eventually you're going to probably go to grad school and then grad school will probably get you closer to your career um than your under than your undergraduate except for a few people can go from their bachelor's to their career right. most of us are going to need some additional schooling especially in this knowledge economy where we're really working more with our brains than anything else these days my business school experience was so much i went in with yeah. such a different mindset and it, it blew away my undergraduate years as well. But yeah. but I just have to, I read in your bio that you did acapella. So you did go out. And I loved acapella. That was fun as hell. We, we toured around the country. It was that, to me, like the best parts of Penn, going abroad, going to France, yeah. um, was amazing, life-changing. Um, and my acapella group, that was so much fun for me. And then my, some painting on campus. I'm a, an artist doing like the art stuff. But in terms of, and then there were four great classes. But a lot of that, it was parties and girls and other stuff. But it, the academics for me, I learned very little um, that was relevant or that I kept. And then for me, like as a business person, like I, I spent four years doing undergraduate business, six months on the ground as, at McKinsey as a consultant. I learned more in six months than the four years of, of books. So I feel like, you know what, I, I think in my sense of it was a lot of that time was not that useful or valuable. But I, I, did, like I, I have a degree for it. But, you know, my, my experiences, my educational, my learning in my master's program changed me. And I, it changed my way of viewing the world. And the way my bachelor's degree was kind of going through the motions right. uh, for the most part. So my master's, my doctorate, those blew my, my mind open. Undergraduate, like, eh, I kind of lost. Maybe I, I, I would redo those. I would do them differently. Same. Right chance. I would too. The yeah. only thing is I have to make a couple connections. One, I also went to France. Two, I wasn't in acapella, but I'm an acapella groupie. It was so much fun. Like, it was so, so much fun. Went to high school right down the street from Yale. So we would always see poops. the poops are great. So I'm just saying, I may have, you know, seen you at one of your shows that you didn't realize that person in the back was going. Yeah, the bulbs, the tufts, and the poops. There's some great groups. Yeah, for sure. Unbelievable. Is there any favorite food spot in any college campus that you've been to that you would say, if you're on that campus, go to or, or on and around that community? I mean, when I was at when I was a Penn, I mean, it was uh, La Bus was my favorite place on Sansom. Um, and I would go to, I, I could live in La Bus in terms of their, their healthy food. It was healthy and fabulous and fresh. I hope they're still around. Um, I know the pandemic has been very tough to private, um, you know, my restaurants. It's, it's like franchise hell after this is all over. Um, but, you know, but hopefully they're still around. They were amazing. Okay. And, um, like, yeah, the White Dog Cafe, La Bus um, on Penn's campus, I loved. 
and I ate there all the time. Jed, thank you so much for yeah, today. That was really enriching and really interesting. And I'm going to listen to this podcast over and over again. <laughs> well, great. Glad to be here. And if you're happy to do it again, if you ever need me again. Thank you. Thank you to Jed for a truly rich and insightful conversation on ways we can create healthy environments, whether it is in our classroom, outside of the classroom, our work environment, or at home. So many of the concepts we discussed are applicable to how we can take control of our current situation by creating healthy habits, instilling rules to change our behavior, using cognitive reframing and self-regulation as a way to achieve success, not only in the classroom, but in work environments and at home. Stay connected and engaged because as humans, we need that. It's in our DNA. Reach out to your family, friends, classmates, and colleagues as now more than ever, people are craving for social interactions. You can find all of our show notes and links to the helpful resources mentioned throughout our conversation on our website at collegescoops.com slash podcast. You can learn more about Jed and Apple Ruth tutoring services on their website at appleruth.com. Please take a couple of minutes to rate, review, and subscribe to College Scoops. Thank you for listening to our College Scoops podcast. Our entire College Scoops team strives to make the college journey a little bit easier, less stressful, fun, and tasty by sharing all the inside scoops we have curated along the way. We would love to hear from you about topics to cover and your ideas on everything college related. Reach out to us at collegescoops.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.